All right, let's look at patience, shall we? This talking today about the patience of God. I've really enjoyed looking at this uh, series of God's attributes with you. Some of the attributes we've looked at have been incommunicable ones, meaning you can't have, you can't share them. Like God is all powerful, God is all knowing. We can't have that. But others of the attributes are ones that we are called to share, and this is one such uh, communicable attribute. God is patient. It tells us. And that's our hope. In fact, it says that's our salvation, that God is patient with us. And at the same time, we are, in many other places of Scripture, called to be patient as well. And so let's think this evening about this whole idea that God is patient. And to do that, I want you to start by thinking about a time in your life when delay was a good thing. Uh, Sometimes we get very angry when things get delayed. But sometimes delay is good. Can you think of a time when you were convinced of that? Your draft notice. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Exactly. Uh, others? Saving for retirement. Saving for retirement. Yeah, it's, that's right. Waiting for that is a good thing. You don't want to retire now. Because you probably don't, if you're like me, you don't have enough, right? Uh, it takes time. See, there's things you've got to wait on uh, over time. And delay is not always bad. In fact, uh, that's how I want you to think about this. God's patience, we're going to see, is his delay. Uh, it's the delay of his wrath. That's what in the Bible patience is. It's when God delays his wrath. And that is an extraordinarily good thing because it leaves open an opportunity, a golden opportunity for men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to him before it's too late. That's why Peter's able to say, patience is our only hope. Patience is our salvation, just as Paul taught you. Now, I love the little note, I hope you do, that when he says about Paul, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. Isn't that good? I don't know if you noticed that, but it's in verse 16. So if you ever read Paul and think, I don't know what he's talking about, Peter thought that too on occasion. But he said, you know, but he wasn't accusing Paul of being wrong. He was just saying the man is deep. The man has really thought these things out. And the Lord has blessed him with deep understanding. And he agrees with me. If God wasn't patient, we would all perish. And so I want to think about this with you in three ways tonight. If you look at your bulletin, first we're going to look at that simple phrase, God is patient. What does it mean for God to be patient? Where, where do we find that in the rest of the scriptures? How does this text help us? Secondly, we're going to look at that phrase, toward you, and we're going to ask who benefits from the patience of God? Who is the you in the passage? And then finally, we're going to look at the phrase, that all should reach repentance. And we're going to look a little bit at how we can benefit from God's patience every day. So let's look, first of all, at what God's patience is. God is patient. Uh, We can see this in verses 8 and 9. Peter begins by telling us that there's one fact that we should not overlook when it comes to thinking about the second coming of Christ. You should never overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Um, Now, Peter was writing 2,000 years ago. And he already had people who were saying, hold on, this promise of Jesus' second coming, it's slow. Well, if there are people already thinking that 2,000 years ago, what about today? 
how long has, has the Lord tarried, you know, as they used to say? How, how long has he been waiting for his second coming? A long time. We don't know when this age of waiting will be up. But Peter says no matter how long it goes on, whether it goes on another thousand years or two thousand more years or maybe it's tomorrow, we should never forget that with the Lord, his timing is different from our timing, which makes sense. Why? Well, it makes sense that the Lord of time would think about time a little bit different than us who are in time and bound by time and we, all we've ever known is time and we have to experience time as past, present, future, one second on the clock at a time. We can never go forward. We can never go back. It's just one second at a time. For God, it says he sees the end from the beginning. Uh, he's, he made all the plans for the world before there ever was time. He carries them out in time, but he himself is never bound by it. And so to him, a day might as well be a thousand years, and a thousand years might as well be a day. God's view of time is different. The Lord is not delaying the second coming of Christ because he has some bad sense of timing. It's rather because he has a better sense of timing than we do. Now, why does he have a better sense of timing? Verse 9. Well, it's not because he is neglectful. Neglectful. It says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow or slack, or lazy, to fulfill his promise. It's not that the Lord uh, is dragging his feet to do what he said he's going to do. No, there is no slowness in God. In verse 9, it tells us some people, when they see the delay of the second coming, count it as slowness, that they, they assume this must mean God doesn't intend to fulfill his promise, or maybe God is somehow reluctant for some reason to do that. Uh, maybe he's unable to carry out the things that he promised to do. Peter says none of that is true. There is no slowness in God as some count slowness. But what's the issue? God is patient. God's sense of timing is perfect because he's the Lord of time and he's using time in order to give room for sinners like us to repent in light of the coming judgment and the coming wrath. In verse 10, he, he describes that coming day of the Lord. This is the, the, the description of the second coming. And if you know about the Old Testament prophets, you know they love to use that phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Uh, that, that phrase means the judgment day, the day when God is going to, without any question, people are not going to be able to say, is, where is God? He's going to be there, boom, in the most un questionable, undeniable way. And he's going to separate people, as Jesus said, like a shepherd, a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's going to make a distinction among people. He's going to judge the world. That's the day of the Lord. And here in verse 10, he describes that day. It'll come like a thief. How does a thief come? Dead of night? Unannounced, right? Yeah, they don't announce it. That's the key, right? They don't announce it. They don't call ahead. They don't give you the schedule of what houses they're going to hit on what nights. If they did that, what would happen? They'd be quite unsuccessful in their thievery. And so the Lord has made it plain. He's, he's not that he's a thief, but he's like a thief in this way. He does not announce to the human race the exact time of his judgment day because he wants people to always think about being ready. 
to constantly be getting themselves ready for that time whenever it comes, and it could be next moment, next moment, next moment, always be ready. There, there is a heart of readiness that God wants people to have. Why? Because that day is going to be a very cosmic day. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works done on it will be exposed or you could also translate it, they'll be found. The, the, the works on earth will be revealed for what they really are and for what they really have always been. Um, it's as if, you know, that part at the end of the Wizard of Oz where the curtain is drawn back and there's the wizard behind the curtain. That's kind of what it's getting at. The, the, the curtain of this world is going to be pulled back on the day of judgment and all the works done on it are going to be exposed. They're going to be found out. For what they really are. That's why God is delaying. Because God wants to give room for people to be prepared for that day. It is in God's plan that when his judgment day comes. He's going to come to a people who are prepared. Now not everybody will be prepared. But God has determined that there will be some people. In fact a great multitude of people throughout all times and places. That have been prepared. That he can bring to himself to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the, that's the, the real reason behind the 2,000 years that have expired since Jesus ascended into heaven. Now this is according to a pattern that you find all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. When God said to Adam and Eve, uh, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then they ate it, and then what? They lived like a thousand years. <laughs> they lived like 900 and something years. And you're like, okay, what? Is, is God slack? No. Well, it must be, most theologians will point out there is a sense in which they did die that day. Of course, the, the most serious kind of death, the spiritual death, occurred right away. But it is also true that God spared them for 900 some odd years so that they could have sons and daughters and raise a family and learn to worship and prepare themselves for God's judgment which we have every reason to believe Adam and Eve did that. And Adam and Eve are in heaven today because God stayed his judgment all that time in their life so that they could come to repentance. With Noah, God said to Noah, I want you to build an ark. I'm going to destroy the world. Uh, when did the floods come? It gives you the exact number of years in Genesis. 120 years later, the rains came. From the time Noah first heard about that and began to build the boat, 120 years went past until the floods actually came. What was Noah doing during all that time? Well, Peter tells you in, 1 Peter, in, in the book of 1 Peter where he says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was sent out to tell people about what was going to happen, about the judgment that was to come so that they could be ready. God waited 120 years so that people could be ready. The Tower of Babel. They built a tower into heaven. God came down to see their puny little tower. And it says, He scattered them and confused their language so that they could not sin in such a great way again. Notice the patience of God. God helped them by dividing them so they could not band together in their sin. Ever read about Israel in the desert? Is there any examples of patience from God when Israel was in the desert? 
Can you think of any? Oh boy. Daily. Uh, they complained and they whined. I think we would do the same thing, quite honestly. I mean, when they didn't have water, they whined and God gave them water. When they didn't have bread, God, they whined and God gave them manna. When they had manna, they whined and God gave them quail. And then they whined again. And, and the Lord is always coming back. Always coming back and always waiting. Nineveh. God sent Jonah. Repent or you will perish. They repented and they didn't perish. At least for another couple hundred years until later, Nahum, another prophet, was sent to them to say, now you're going to perish because now you have gone back to your sin. And you can read a lot in, in the book of Nahum, by the way, about the wrath of God and the patience of God. Because that's what patience is. It's God's willingness to defer his wrath that you see a time and time again throughout Scripture. And God always defers his wrath because he has some other glorious or gracious reason to do so. It's not that God is obligated to defer his wrath to a future time. God could show his wrath at any time. He's right to do it. And we ought to all take God's wrath seriously and know that God could at any time unload the fullness of his wrath on this world at any moment. And he would be totally justified to do it. But the Lord, for some greater, more glorious, more gracious reason, is holding back in so many ways so that people can find their way through Jesus Christ back to him. Imagine it. How much patience, how much deference does it take for the holy God to hold back his wrath against unholiness? I can't even hold my tongue when people offend me. Can you? I have a hard time with it anyway. I like to bite my tongue. Imagine the living God holding back, doing what is right in order to delay it so that he might do a greater right, which is to show mercy and clemency to people. Uh, it was Jonathan Edwards who preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in the 1700s. And that sermon is a, actually a really beautiful awesome sermon that I, I recommend you go read sometime and in it that's the whole theme he says don't you realize that at this moment if you're not a true believer if you're just a hypocrite in church and at that time that was apparently a big problem he said if you're just a hypocrite in church don't you realize that at any time God could send you to hell that nothing's holding you from hell right now except God's sheer patience well it started a revival when he preached that <laughs> And if you go read it, I think you'll, you'll see why. And also that sermon gets a bad rap because when you go read it, if you read all the way to the end, he does a beautiful job of explaining God's forgiveness at the end to those who repent and to those who confess. It's not just a sermon about hellfire and brimstone. It's a sermon about God's patient holding back of hellfire and brimstone so that you have a chance, an opportunity to, to live. Wow. When I think about the patience of God, I, I can't help but see so much evidence in the Bible of it. And I also can't help but look at my own life and see how patient he's been with me. How many times God could have been done with me. How about you? And he wasn't done with me. He kept coming back. He kept being gracious. He kept showing me the gospel. He, every, even when I ignored it, he kept showing it to me. Wow. What a patient God. Peter says to these Christians, don't overlook this. 
when you're, when you're trying to wonder about why, you know, judgment's not coming, realize the fact that God is not giving judgment yet just means he's got more people he wants to gather in. It must be he's holding back so that heaven might be fuller in the future. Isn't that beautiful? One writer says, God's patience is the silence of his justice and the first whisper of his mercy. It's that interplay between him silencing his justice for a time so that mercy might begin to whisper to the human race. Well, that leads us to our second point, which is not only is God patient, it sells us there, but God is patient toward you. Toward you. Do you see that in verse um, 9? God is patient towards you, or as the footnote says, on your account. And so we have to ask, who is the you here? Who benefits from the patience of God? Well, this morning, at least in one of the services, I gave this example. that I think I did in one of the services, but I can't remember which one it was in. Um, it was in my notes for tonight, and I accidentally gave it this morning. But I'm going to give it at night again. Uh, on a ship, you might have lifeboats. Did I give that in one of the services this morning? Yeah, okay. You have lifeboats all around the ship. And it's wonderful to know those lifeboats are there. In fact, when you go onto a cruise or something like that, they always, the first thing they do is they show you like where the lifeboats are, where to go to get on them. But if the thing starts going down, you have to actually get onto the lifeboat for the lifeboat to help you. In fact, the, the, the ship can have plenty of lifeboats, but anybody who stubbornly refuses to stay on the ship will not benefit from the lifeboat being there. I think everybody agrees with that logic, right? Pretty logical. Well, that's essentially what Peter is saying when he says God is patient towards you. You, meaning those whom he calls to repentance. And those who repent are those who ultimately benefit from this time of patience. There's a sense in which every single person in the whole world benefits from the patience of God. Of course. Because the fact that God hasn't judged us all yet means what? We're here. We're here above ground. We're not in hell right now. That, that's a beautiful benefit from the patience of God. It also means we're here and capable of being able to hear the, about the grace of God given in the gospel. The offer of Jesus Christ, which is to come to him and get forgiveness. To come to him and get a life change through the Holy Spirit that he's offering to give you. To every person who believes, he will give the Holy Spirit. Everybody benefits by hearing that message and knowing that they too can get on the lifeboat. However, it's so important to remember, not everyone will benefit from the lifeboat unless... They actually take God up on that offer and get in. And so that's why Peter says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The, the way that a person does not perish in the coming judgment is that they repent or that they reach repentance. And so God's Universal benefit to people of holding back his judgment is especially beneficial to anybody who will listen to God, hear his message, and say, you know what? That's right. I deserve God's wrath, and I better get ready. And so, Lord, I come to repent. Lord, I come to accept the lifeboat that you have provided for me in Jesus Christ and through his cross. Isn't that great? 
God removes all our excuses by giving us time and by ensuring that the message of the gospel is going to go to all the nations. By the way, did you know that that's what the scripture says? It's what Jesus said. Uh, The end will not come until this gospel is preached as a testimony to all the nations. And there you have it. There you have some more information about why God is holding back. Because he wants the gospel to go out to everybody. He's got a plan of who is going to be gathered in. And he is holding out so that all all the people would have the opportunity to repent. And so that his people might be led to repentance by him. God ensures that all his means of salvation will one day achieve the purposes that he made from the beginning. This is what we read this morning in 2 Samuel. God devises means so that the banished one can come home. This is what it's talking about. God devises means so that the banished one can come back home. The Lord's patience is giving room. And the Lord's patience is not only giving room for us to hear the message and decide whether we want to believe or not, but it's giving room for him to work, to cause us to believe, to call us to faith, to give us the gift of life. We are, after all, believers in sovereign grace. Grace is not just a weak, ineffectual offer of God where he says, you know, if anybody will come and that's it. He walks away and then leaves it up to us to decide. Uh, We believe that if that were really what God did, heaven would have a very low population and hell would have a very high population. It would be zero and everybody else. Right? Because Scripture teaches us very plainly that sin makes us unwilling to listen to God by nature. And so the room that God is making is not just a room for us to decide, although that's part of it. The bigger thing is it's giving room for Him to chase His people down and to bring them in by His grace into the kingdom. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of righteousness, convicts the world of sin and of judgment so that people would see their need for Jesus and come to him. The gospel, to me, gives us such a hopeful view, I think, of, the, of life, which is so needed in, in today's society, because if you just looked at the world as it is, it would not yield a whole lot of reason for comfort or hope. And yet, Scripture says God is not absent in this world. There is a God. He really does have wrath, and he really will pour it out. The only reason he's not now in its full measure is because he's waiting to show grace. Which also means this God is not unappeasable. God is not just a wrathful ogre who can never be appeased. God has made a way for himself to be appeased. And literally any sinner, no matter how bad the sinner is, can find the favor of God in Jesus Christ. Wow. And so this is the reason, this is why after this week we're going to leave this series to go into a series on the book of Acts, starting next week, here in the evenings, where we're going to talk about evangelism and just generally the mission of going out and, and inviting people into the kingdom of heaven, showing them the gospel, because this is what this whole time between Christ's first coming and second coming are really all about in God's view. The ingathering and the perfecting of his people leading up to the final judgment. And if the church is not active in gathering and perfecting the saints, then, well, I'm not sure what we're up to, right? 
And so that's what we want to look at uh, starting next week based on stuff like this. The Lord is patient. And the patience of God backs up his great mission. Uh, I always like to think of this way. And sometimes the answer is not the answer that I need to give. But I always ask myself, who am I helping to understand the gospel? And I don't give myself an out and say, well, everybody on Sunday when I preach. I, I try to challenge myself a little more than that. And I say, okay, who outside of just my preaching am I going to try to help understand the gospel? And who am I praying for that God might open their eyes? And those are some of the things I'm going to help y'all with, uh, Lord willing, in this next series. But that leads us tonight to our very last thing about the patience of God, and that is how we can benefit from it. How we can personally benefit, not just by being saved, but actually every day of our lives we can benefit from God's patience, Peter tells us. And we see that in verses uh, 9 to 18, really, the rest of the the passage. Uh, It says that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Then skipping verse 10, which we've already looked at, verse 11, since all these things, all of heaven and all of earth, are to be dissolved one day, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Wow. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Notice how he's exhorting them. He's saying, because God is patient, he holds back his wrath because he has a gracious and a more glorious purpose. And because you are being benefited by it, by being given the opportunity to repent and so that God can have room to work on you and in you, we ought to live different lives as a result of that, knowing that God is patient. We ought to live differently. We ought to be diligent. We ought to be waiting for and hastening even, we'll talk about that in a second, hastening the coming day of God by the way that we live our lives. Did you know that there's a, um, there's a disorder that causes people not to be able to recognize faces. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, When I was in psychology class in college, uh, I learned about this, and it was actually had to read about some of the studies that they did to to determine what was causing it. And there's actually a section of your brain, apparently, that deals primarily with facial recognition. And when people are in certain kinds of accidents or tumors or things like that, in that section, they might actually lose all the ability to distinguish one face from another. Amazing, isn't it? So one guy in one of the studies didn't recognize his wife uh, compared to other women. He had to recognize her by her watch and rings and things like that because he couldn't tell the face. Now that's bizarre, isn't it? It's one of those file that away in medical you know, oddities and pray that that never happens. But I think, you know, I think a lot of Christians suffer from that same disorder when it comes to God. I think we have a hard time locating the face of God and a hard time knowing what that face is really like when we do locate it. Uh, We think God is being indulgent when he's really putting his foot down. Or we think God is only putting his foot down and being mean when he's really being gracious It's like we get it all mixed up. We think God is angry when he is 
pleased and we think he's pleased when he's angry. There's a confusion about recognizing the face of God that I think afflicts people. And Peter is saying, if you'll understand that God is patient, it'll help you see his face well. Because patience means two things about God's face. One, he is smiling that his people might come home. And he is smiling when his people come home. He delights in his children. That's true. It's also true about the face of God that that delight and that room that he gives us to come back home is precisely because his face is also very stern against sin. And it never wavers against sin. God never, can never smile at sin or blink his eye at it or close his eyes to it. He's always furious with sin. Locating that in the face of God is so helpful to see, yes, this God that we know, there's only one God, really, and this God that we know is a God who will not tolerate sin at all. He can have no sympathy with it. He can give no quarter to it. He will will not allow it to go unchecked ever. And yet this God is holding back the wrath so that his people might receive his smile, might receive his gracious look, the look of a father to a son or a daughter. Wow. And so as a Christian, I can simultaneously believe two things. This is something Martin Luther said, which is pretty cool. I can simultaneously believe, A, I'm a sinner, and B, I'm a child of God, accepted by him and loved by him. That's what Luther said. How can that be? Well, Peter and Paul tell us. I'm a sinner. Yes. God's wrath is justly against me. Yes. Well, why is it that God doesn't frown at me? Because God has in his patience devised means through his son Jesus for someone like me to come into his family and receive his fatherly love and fatherly care. I am a sinner and yet I am by his grace justified. I'm a sinner who deserves wrath and yet I don't get it. God spares me. Because God has given it to Jesus and now has given me the grace that Jesus would have deserved. A grace not only to forgive me, but a grace to keep working in me and not ever giving up on me. He's patient over the long haul, working on me, changing me through time, never throwing in the towel on me. I am a sinner and I am a son and daughter or daughter of God at the same time. God frowns at sin and he smiles at his people. Now some people might say that's a paradox. But again, it's only a paradox if you count out something like verse 15. And if you count out something like verse 9. And if you count out something like verse 18. Let's look at them. 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you. And Paul, we know what he wrote. He wrote about justification by faith. That a person is forgiven and accepted as righteous because of what Christ did for him or her. 
not because of their works. Then it tells us in verse 9, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all his people should reach repentance. And then uh, in verse 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, knowing Jesus is salvation. He is the means that God has devised that the banished ones might come home. And so he holds back his wrath now so that people could benefit from it by repenting, turning, and every day living as those who have received God's smile by sheer and undeserved mercy. Peter says this should not make us lazy, it should make us diligent. Because God is patient, verse 14, we ought to wait too. We ought to wait. We ought to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. In other words, a Christian ought to be hardworking at trying to be holy, at trying to obey the Lord. That ought to be the, the real business of a Christian. Not, not in order to earn your salvation, but because you've been saved by grace. You ought to, that ought to be your business, to try to obey the Lord. Don't twist the gospel, he, he goes on to say in verse 16. There are some ignorant and unstable people who've always twisted the scriptures. And in my view, people twist it in one of two ways. They either make it legalism, which is obey to, to be saved and be perfect and then you can be saved. Or they twist it in the way of license, which is grace, and so you can do whatever you want to do. That's what ignorant and unstable people do to the Bible. But those who are willing to be taught by God in the Bible won't do those two things. Instead, they'll say, grace, wow, the fuel for me to work for God, the fuel for me to wait on him, the fuel for me to share my faith, the fuel for me to obey. And when I fail, which I will do, what do I do? Go back to grace. Go back to God and say, God, this is, why you've been, this is why I need you to be patient. And thank you that you are. Thank you that you have not done to me what my sins have deserved. Thank you that you treated Christ as my substitute so that I could live clean before you, so that I could recognize your face. It, it to me, is a great tragedy. And I think that we get legalistic and we get loose in our thinking precisely because we don't recognize what God's true face looks like. We don't see the seriousness of sin in his face. Or, or maybe and, we also don't see the smile that he so longs to show to his people. If we learn how to see both at the same time, and that can be done, it can be done, there's motivation. There's motivation to, dil to diligence. There's motivation to wait. There's motivation even to do what it says. Um, and I love this in verse 11 or 12, excuse me. Hasten the coming of the day of God. Now this is a mystery. This is the last thing we want to look at. He says you should wait and hasten the coming of the day of God. What does hasten mean? Make it faster. Okay. This is interesting. Um, can we hasten the return of Christ? I don't know. I mean, what do you think? 
It sounds like we, we can in some way, but could it really be that God had, you know, say God has uh, December 21st, 2020, 2030 on his calendar. Could it be that we could do something to switch it to January 10th, 2026? No. no. Good answer. Yes. No. So what does it mean, hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? Well, I think he means it in a sort of figurative way. And there's a story that I would uh, point you to in the Old Testament. Remember Jacob wanted to marry Rachel? Remember this? And instead of Rachel, Laban gave him Leah. And, you know, nothing against Leah, but he wasn't wanting to marry Leah. And so he ended up with both Leah and Rachel. And it said he had to work for the one seven years, and then he had to work again for Rachel another seven years. And then it gives this phrase, but they seem to him to be but a day because of how much he loved Rachel. That's what I think this means. The hastening is not a literal, we're going to make Jesus come back before he's ready to come back or before God has planned for him to come back. I think what this means is if we learn how to live lives of holiness and godliness and diligence and we wait on the Lord and we see his face and we appreciate his patience, it will make the intervening time, no matter how long it is, seem like nothing. We will taste a little bit of what God experiences with time where it says a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And sometimes Christians need to hear that message because it isn't always, well, it isn't always true that living the Christian life is pleasant or easy. I think everybody agrees with that, right? And Christians are sometimes made to wait on things that the Lord is doing for a very long time in their lives. Sometimes it's good to know that there's a way of life that God is calling us to and he's equipping us for that won't make that process speed up, but it will make it seem <laughs> to speed up. It'll make it tolerable. It'll, it'll, it might even make it fruitful and beneficial in our lives. Think about the people Peter was writing to. Uh, it told us uh, in chapter 1 of Second Peter... <laughs> that he was writing uh, to the Christians who have obtained an equal, a faith of equal standing with ours. And then it goes on to say that uh, you are facing many um, persecutions and many abuses from people. Chapter 2 kind of goes through all the ways that people are trying to take advantage of them as Christians, even people from within the church that are, that are mistreating them. It makes for good reading in chapter 2, very helpful reading. Well, these are people who... For them, waiting on Jesus to come back was no theoretical thing. It was like, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to have to bear with this, this difficulty of this life with Jesus here on earth? And Peter's saying, you know what? If you'll give yourself, if you'll give yourself to holiness and godliness and make that your chief business in view of God's patience, you'll hasten it. And you'll be able to say like Jacob, I served seven years, then another seven for Rachel. But it was like a day. I hope we say that when we see Jesus.
all that stuff that we experienced on earth, oh, in the experience, it was terrible. But you know, it's like nothing to me now because I see him face to face. 